Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to Podcast 26 in our series on world history. In Podcast 25, we looked at how Western society was slowly breaking away from feudalism and the idea of the feudalist state, which was giving rise to the, uh, to the idea of the nation state. As I postulated, and again, that's from my background because I'm a military historian, that I am showing significant or giving significant emphasis on the idea of gunpowder and how that was a game changer in this idea of self-defense of the feudalist state, eventually to the nation state. So we looked at how expensive though warfare was becoming, hence the reason for the rise of our first fields of business, finance, and accounting. We then looked at the idea of a tax system. We also in that podcast looked at the establishment of a legal and judicial system, the difference between Napoleonic versus common law. And then we ended that podcast by beginning to discuss the idea of towns or cities and economic revival, which is where we'll continue today in this next podcast. So like those manorialists and feudalist states, initially cities and towns could attract more people if they had the walls enclosing them, just like the feudalist states had, again, before the age of gunpowder. This, these walls, so massive, can still be seen, and I've had the opportunity to, to trape some of, some of them, literally, for example, like the uh, Great Wall of China, which I had the opportunity to not only see, but also to walk across in several different parts. I drove through the streets of downtown Istanbul, where you see still to this day those massive brick walls that once enclosed that city back when it was Constantinople and Byzantium before that, that protected the people inside. Again, with the advent of gunpowder, though, that can breach those walls in a matter of minutes, the value of a wall simply disappears along with the idea of the suit of armor. So if one cannot protect themselves and play a significantly good defense, the only other option for human survival is to play a significantly good offense. And that is by possessing the same weapons that can be used to subdue you, you use them in order to defend yourself and possibly subdue the enemy. So each of these towns and cities, though, would have a market as well as a public court. These are these public courts can also still be seen around the world in many countries today. I've been in some of the largest public courts in the world, Tiananmen Square in China, Beijing, China, uh, Red Square in uh, Moscow, Russia. I've had the opportunity to see Trafalgar Square in Great Britain. These are massive courts or then later called squares that were the public meeting places for people to come together. In these particular areas, a distinct 
element in medieval society also began to rise and the challenges that came with it, as we'll see. Because of its attractiveness of having all of these vendors selling their different wares and services, towns consisted of huge populations, but they weren't populations of a monogamous group of people. These would be these cities would draw people from all over the lands, especially in areas that were along the routes that were used by the Crusaders and the Roman Catholic Crusades. So it would not be uncommon, in fact, it would be more common than not, to find foreign people and hear foreign languages in these towns and large cities. Citizens would flock to these cities initially because uh, goods could be bought and sold without taxation. Can you imagine a time when you can buy something without having a sales tax added to it? You're just thinking, wait a minute, you can, you're absolutely right. It's going away, but initially, anything that was bought on the internet initially was tax-free, no sales tax. That's what hurt the brick and mortar businesses more than anything at the outset with the use of the internet had nothing to do with the variety and where the products came from. It was the fact that you could buy them tax-free. On nickel dime items, big deal in terms of the savings, but in several hundred or thousand dollar items and higher, that lack of tax being added to it enhanced your purchasing power as a consumer. So we citizens flocked to the internet initially, many still do to this day, in order to take advantage of the tax break. Now, how are they getting around that? Well, if you notice that in order for you to purchase something, especially if you're gonna have it delivered, to, a, to your address, you have to put in your zip code. Well, if you're purchasing it within a given state that you live in, you're going to have your own state sales tax added to that. And more and more states now are adding to that as well, whereas even if you're shipping it from out of state into your own, you're going to pay that state sales tax. You knew it wouldn't be long before Uncle Sam would eventually jump on that bandwagon for some easy revenue. And let's face it, with literally the billions of dollars that consumers are purchasing online, it wasn't going to be long before Uncle Sam would have their hand in the till. The other part, though, that these towns presented was not only the opportunities of buying different types of goods, it also created a problem for the merchants. The reason being is in the feudal estate, and you, for example, if you sold leather goods, by and large, you might not have had any competitors. You might have been the only one that sold leather goods. You might have been the only blacksmith. You might have been the only goldsmith. You might have been the only merchant that worked with certain fabrics in order to purchase, to make um, consumer goods in order for you to sell. Going into the city now, or the large towns, that means you're going to have competition. There are individuals that are going to be making the same products you are, but maybe you always stood by the old, same old, same old by simply producing black leather goods. You never used or never experimented with any other colors. Well, now you go to the cities, you attempt to set up your stand in the marketplace or in the public square and find out that individuals right down the way from you are selling the same top types of products, but maybe they're using a different type of leather, a different type of fabric, a different color. You roll your eyes and you say, what's the big deal today? That's right, because we take that for granted. But in this particular time before the Industrial Revolution, that was huge 
to find that somebody could work with a different color or different fabric than what you were used to in your own home feudal estate. The way these citizens tried to overcome this was by those citizens performing similar services, formed guilds, and literally had terms which we still use today, such as apprentice and then journeyman. You can see those terms the next time that you have an opportunity to see a classified a newspaper in print and have a classified ad, go, especially on the Sunday uh, editions, go to the employment section where individual companies are posting, whether it be for an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, and you will see the terms only looking for an apprentice or only a journeyman. Why? Because that dictates how much they're willing or can pay for that particular professional to come in to perform those services. So it's a, these are terms that start in the Middle Ages that are still with us today. Merchants. How did you distinguish your leather bag from the merchant that's selling one down the street? Because you made sure that your bag had a certain marking on it that was literally unable to be copied or reproduced by anyone else because only you had that tool. That would eventually give rise, for example, to the bags that have that G on it. That is a genuine Gucci bag or the Rolex with the way that R is stamped in the middle of the face of the watch that distinguishes it from any of the knockoff brands that are out there. Again, especially in the age of the industrial revolution, it's a lot easier to mimic these international brands. But before the industrial revolution, it was far more difficult. Another downside to the cities and towns is that there was very little, if any, planning or development. There was no urban planning codes. There was no zoning. So therefore, pollution became rampant. And as we'll find out in a, in a couple of podcasts down the road, it would also become lethal, truly deadly. But backing up to this idea of town planning, initially, they would have a major street that went from the town gate on the one end of the, of the uh, town all the way across to the other gate. That would have the most traffic. That would be the main artery of what would eventually we would derive the term Main Street from. Because that had the highest foot traffic, it had the highest sales generally. Therefore, you paid the most to have your vending site somewhere along that major thoroughfare. But with that little town planning and development, pollution again would run, would run rampant, not only from the products that were the byproducts that these merchants were using to make their own goods, but also that of the horses, other livestock from us, from humans themselves. It was not unheard of for these towns and cities to be literally ghastly, dirty, and beyond obnoxiously smelling in the height of hot and humid summers. And you can only imagine with what we now know, the way germs, viruses, and bacteria travel, that's what I mean when I said that this is eventually going to come back and haunt the human race as it will become so lethal. It was also in these towns not unheard of to have a private residence where people were living right next to somebody that was selling leather goods, right next to a blacksmith, but then there's another residential home. By and large, in Western society, we eliminate that for the most part. That's the reason, and it's for our own economic interest. 
This is the reason why, for example, where I'm speaking from in my home in Stowe, Ohio, if my wife and I were to sell the house, we can't simply list it and hope that a business will buy it, knock the house down and put in a McDonald's or put in a, a, a Jiffy oil change. It's not going to happen because where we live, and this is what I mean by the urban planning codes and zoning, we are living in an area that is zoned residential. That means that a business can't come in here. And you might say, wait a minute, why would the government interfere with my ability to sell to a higher offer for a business that wants to establish one of its branch sites here? Think about the neighbors. Think about how the, what would happen to the value of our neighbors on the west and the east of us, much less across the street, if suddenly a business came in here with a lot of traffic. The, home, their, the values of their homes would plummet as a result. So this is what we mean by the planning codes and zoning. Another part of that that comes out of it is what your area is zoned for. All the vacant land that can be eventually bought and has been bought in the United States and developed, again, can go into whether it will be zoned residential, whether it will be zoned commercial or zoned industrial. That dictates what type of business or what type of buildings can be established. Within that, though, some areas do that better than others. Some of these areas have higher crimes than others. And that's why, for example, within the United States, we've developed what became known as the Zone Improvement Plan Coding System. Nobody lives anywhere in the United States without having a Zone Improvement Plan Code that your property is within. Think about for a moment what your zone improvement plan code is. You know it, but you don't know it by the full name. Rather, you know it by the acronym ZIP, ZIP. That's where we get the idea of a zip code or what the zip code means. So more useless information for you to sleep better tonight. But that is just some of the overarching concepts, the good as well as the bad, that came to bear down upon the rise of the towns and economic revival and the rise of the eventual large cities at the height and the uh, setting sun of the age of the Middle Ages. So from here, we're also going to see one other aspect that, that derives with or develops within this, and that's what becomes known as the commercial revolution, where a distinctive merchant class developed. They were small, but they were powerful. This is where we would begin to see the power of money, the power of the ability to generate income. The reason for this is because of the way these towns and cities attracted people from all over the land, unprecedented amounts of wealth paved the way to new living standards within these cities. If I were to see you somewhere, or we're emailing one another, texting one another, I see you at the store. I was almost going to say the mall. That's a dying place today, right? But to see you somewhere, and we're just getting get into small talk, and I said, oh, yeah, I had uh, dinner last night at a wonderful five-star restaurant. Very expensive. Even the soup was $15, right? Without asking any other questions, without me saying anything further, you would already be able to draw a conclusion as to where that restaurant was located. You would know most likely that that restaurant isn't out in the middle of Nowheresville. 
it's now not out in the rural area amongst farms and plantations, right? Of course not, because there wouldn't be enough people in that area to justify a restaurant like that going in. A restaurant like that is only going to be do to be able to do well, by and large, in the middle or on the outskirts of a large town or city. As a result of that, people found themselves with this new living standards developing by having the common use now, rather than the rare occasion, of eating one's food using utensils, napkins becoming commonplace. These would become sources of taxes, a new source of taxes for the state when the state eventually caught on. Remember, too, that the more taxes being collected meant for a stronger nation state. And finally, the popularity of the towns by all classes of people led to the decline in the number of feudal states, thus creating the outline for the development of the modern nation state which we will continue to track from this podcast forward. So that's our discussion again on cities and the commercial revolution within feudal society. What I want to do now is look at two institutions, which also became hallmarks of some European cities. One was the rise of the medieval university, and the other would be the rise of the Gothic cathedrals. In terms of the universities, please note just a couple of facts about this, about these institutions. It parallels the rise of the modern state. Why? Because as we talked about earlier, with the rise of the first business fields and legal systems, there would be the demand for the educated state workers. With more and more people coming together and pollution running rampant, medical knowledge was also going to have to increase. As slow as it was initially, there would be a demand for it. And if nothing more, as I share with my students, degrees back in medieval times, in some cases, were no different than degrees today. You're getting a degree or a certificate because there's a demand for it. Societies that once geared for war were becoming more stable as the need for educated citizens skyrocketed. In our some of the first universities to grace the surface of planet Earth, the very first one that is still the oldest continuous operating university in the world, the University of Bologna, founded in 1088, focusing on its first, first field of specialty, that no surprise being law, Salerno was actually founded in the 800s, but no longer exists today. Their focus also was in medicine, another field again that was in high demand, to the point that some kings of former feudal estates would not allow individuals in their countries to operate medically unless they had some kind of certificate from the University of Salerno. So what do we see there? a demand for people to have credentials in order to claim to work in a certain area, something that just we see the trace of beginning in the Middle Ages, which, of course, is more than commonplace in the modern world. As I stated earlier, though, and I just want to stress, universities, again, are rising only because there's a need. And that's the reason why all the way through to 2020, 
universities by and large offer majors where there's a demand. And let's face it, in the social sciences is where we get the biggest hit. I'm not just ripping on social sciences. I'm going to go right ahead and attack my own field, that being history. How many people, when they found out that my major was history, much less when I was going to get a master's degree in it, how many people looked at me and said, are you serious? Master's degree in history, what are you going to do with that besides ask, excuse me, ma'am or sir, do you want this paper or plastic? Will this be for here to go? Because if they don't know the field, they don't know what I can do with a degree in history. Is it as common as what I can do with a, with a degree in finance? Hardly. Degree in finance, a degree in almost any business field, the demand literally just uh, pummels the lack of demand for the social sciences, specifically history. But I know, because I knew the field, that if I had a master's degree in history and was willing to travel in order to be able to teach or to research, I knew that I could do something with my degree. But yes, far fewer people are demanding degrees in social sciences than they're ever demanding still to this day areas of study that concentrates in law, medicine, or business. This is the reason why prudent universities that are staying ahead of the, trying to stay ahead of the game and trying to stay up with public demand will be the first ones to ditch their majors and fields of study, which no longer have a demand out in international or corporate America or for any other area of high paying in, uh, jobs that are on, in high demand. To the point that not long ago, Loyola University in Chicago finally dropped its program called the Classics. That was a bachelor's degree at one time, believe it or not, used to be able to get a PhD in the Classics. The Classics was a degree largely studying a little bit of every social science. In the modern world, there's no demand for that. So the PhD was dropped, program was dropped from universities around the world uh, decades ago. Some are still hanging on to it if you truly have the money to study it. But by and large, as a program that they advertise, that ship sailed a long time ago. The PhD programs were dropped. The master's degree programs were dropped. And again, not long ago, by not long ago, I'm saying several years ago, Loyola University dropped yet even as a major, uh, the, the classics from its curriculum. And there were students in that major. And when they found out that Loyola was canceling that program, every one of those students got a poster and they went out to the front of that university on the sidewalk and they protested walking back and forth, all two of them walking back and forth, protesting the end of a field that they thought had a future. Again, the universities, folks, like any other institution, whether they're profit or nonprofit, they have to pay the bills. They have to keep the doors open. Therefore, they have to offer programs that are in demand. With the rise of the university, you knew that trouble was going to be lurking somewhere around the corner. Because so far in this podcast, I really haven't mentioned much about organized religion. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Right. And no faith is going to become more upset by the rise in this idea of education than that of the Roman Catholic and eventually the Orthodox Church. It is not the fact at the outset that somebody, somebody is getting educated. 
The problem is the tension that's rise, that begins to rise between reason and faith. That's where the issues come in. Especially when one studies the hard sciences and math, those are fields that are understood by using reason, the, the uh, human mind, to be able to calculate, to reason in equations. Faith doesn't necessarily mean the absence of reason, but faith means I'm going to believe something of that which can't be proven. Reason dictates, here's proof, or there's proof, or here I will prove why 2 plus 2 equals 4. Why putting these two elements together creates this element, and I can replicate that time and time again. Reason. Faith? Different story. And yes, tension would rise as a, as a result of that. Now, people within the Roman Catholic Church, they attempted to come out swinging on this one. No surprise. We're going to look at that of St. Thomas Aquinas in books that were written on a variety of topics called summas. And in his particular um, document or manuscript, the Summa Theologica, where he dives right in or dove right in, dived, I guess I should say, where he said that there was a big distinction between faith and reason. But he wasn't decrying reason or faith. He's just acknowledging, hey, we're getting into get society is progressing, albeit unbelievably slowly, where one can begin now to question some of the stories we are reading on a weekly basis from the Old and or New Testament. But Aquinas didn't stop there. He also then dove deeper into the human mind, where he then asked the question, how does one know something? He literally is asking the bare-bones basic question of the human mind. How do we claim to know something? The answer is to draw out of. So what's the question? What does the word education mean? And Aquinas is the individual, if you want to call him the father of modern-day education, where in the root word of education means to draw out of. That's what Aquinas says. We know something when we can assimilate the new with the old, or at least we have an easier or better chance of learning something new if we can equate it with what's already in our mind, the old. To draw out of, though, is what education's root words are. And it's so important, especially if I have any teachers listening to this podcast, especially students in college looking to teach, please remember that, that if as you are as an educator studying to be an educator, regardless of the age, you're, of the grade you're teaching, and I can speak from experience, I might say, wait a minute, professor, you're just teaching college. You have no idea what the other grades are like. I do. In Illinois, I taught fifth grade all the way through seniors in high school. Education, always remember that as you're putting your curriculum together, planning your classes, they always remember what education means. If you're going to teach them something new and you want them to assimilate that quickly, 
then you need to connect it with something that they know already. This runs counter to sadly what I myself experienced when I was in fourth grade at St. Bernadette Grammar School in Evergreen Park, Illinois. When all of us, a class of roughly 30 some odd students, 32 or 33 students, we were doing our math course, uh, math work. We took a quiz, we handed them in, and the nun, I'm not going to mention Sister Margaret Mary by name, but she went through those tests and she could see that very few of us understood the math that she had taught earlier in the week. And she threw the exams on her desk. She leaned over and put her head into her hands and she said, my God, my God, if I could just open up the tops of your heads and pour in this information, how much easier it would be for all of us. The reason that that episode stands out in my mind is because I was startled but how loud she was almost screaming. That's what startled me. But I had no idea then how literally off base she really was as an educator, as nice as she was. She was doing the exact opposite of what education means or to do effectively. She wanted to simply pour in all right, everybody sit there, open up the tops of your heads. I'm going to pour this information in is something that she was common, she uh, commonly said. But therein lies the problem for her. That's not the way we humans learn. We humans learn by connecting with what we already know. A case in point is if one were to take the idea of the teddy bear I can tell you until I'm blue in the face that President Theodore Roosevelt was a big nature president, carving out lands that would eventually be protected into what we've become known today as national parks. But he was also an avid hunter, which disappointed a lot of people. But the fact that he wouldn't shoot at a, at a cub, at a small bear or a bear that was trapped, to the point that some of his advisors and aides that were hunting with him shortly after he left the presidency basically blocked a bear in so that the president could shoot it. And he saw what they were doing and he said, that's not sportsman's like, that's not good sportsmanship. You don't corner your prey. You have to effectively hunt it down. It's your skill and moxie versus the animal you're hunting. Well, that story got to a New York City toy store owner who then thought he had a great marketing idea. So this New York City toy uh, seller, toy store owner, reads about this account of Teddy Roosevelt not shooting an animal because it wasn't in, in that manner because it wasn't good sportsmanship, took that story taped it up next to a section of stuffed animals for some stuffed bears that he wasn't able to sell. And in honor of that story about the president, he called that particular group of bears the teddy bear. And they sold like wildfire. And as we know, is still a name in the toy market, the toy industry, that still sticks with us. If you notice, almost no other stuffed animal out there, unless it's made to mimic another animal, either the Muppets or something like that, almost no other animal is linked to a human being for as many decades, well over a century, 
as long as the teddy bear has stayed in the American lexicon, right? Now, if you learned nothing further about, in my American history class, about Teddy Roosevelt, you would be able to remember on the next exam, you probably would be able to remember years down the road that Teddy Roosevelt was by and large what America called its first nature president. But it wasn't because I stood in front of the room and shouted that information at you or poured it in. No, you already in your mind had most likely heard of the name Teddy Roosevelt. So that was a given. In your mind, you already knew what a teddy bear was. So that was a given. What maybe you didn't know was the connection between those two. But because they're already in your mind, all I did was, if you can picture with me, please, that the teddy bear is just this dot on the one side of your brain. And Teddy Roosevelt is this other dot. So we have this stuffed animal and the teddy bear, two dots. In going to that particular class, I have drawn a line between them, a connection that maybe you didn't know before you came to class or before you went to school, or before you sought, work with me here, an education. That's what good educating does today. That's part of the reason why it takes me so long before I walk into my classes, even if, there, if the content, which it is, content that I have covered depending upon the class and the content, over two decades now, if you want to include my high school and grammar school teaching, well over two decades now, why I still pour over my discussion outline notes is though I were reading them for the first time. Because what I'm doing is taking content, yes, that I've covered years before, maybe it was only last semester before, but what else is going on in the world today that's different that I can make that connection? This is part of the reason why when my students show up for the first day of class, I tell them, if they ever walk out of my classroom after an hour and 15-minute class or a three-hour class, they ever walk through that door to go home. And they ask themselves, why did he waste his time talking about that idea or that person today? Why did we discuss this event? If they're asking that question, then I haven't done my job because that's what an educator is supposed to do. Regardless of the content, the educator's primary responsibility is for you as the student to be able to be shown, focused on the connection between what you know versus the new content that's being introduced to you. This is the world that St. Thomas Aquinas opened up for us and largely how grateful we are for his scholarship. Please note, too, one last note, too, on uh, degrees in the rise of the university, that students oftentimes are very dismayed to find out that there's one common denominator to a degree that largely hasn't changed in the well over half a millennia that these universities have been with us, or if you want to go back to the one in Bologna, well over a thousand years, is that degrees were just as hard and expensive to obtain then as today. All degrees were certificates of competence in a field that was studied and, most importantly, tested. 
Degrees were also licenses to teach. However, most worked for the church or in state administration throughout the time of the Middle Ages. However, please note that that hasn't changed even through to the 21st century. That degrees, dependent upon the degree, is still automatically a license to teach. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Chris, that's a stretch for you to say that because I'm going for my bachelor's in math and my minor in education. So yeah, it's a degree to teach, but because I'm actually studying teaching, true, with a bachelor's degree. If any of you out there already possess a master's degree, 13.3% of Americans possess a master's degree or higher today. It's not a lot of people. But when you obtain a master's degree, believe it or not, you are automatically qualified to teach. You might say, wait a minute, are you out of your mind? Is that water you're drinking or vodka? Don't ask. No, there's no way that that could be. I know that you have to have a certificate of teaching, a license to teach high school or grammar school. And then maybe you catch yourself as soon as you said that. Exactly. Grammar school or high school. Are you ready for this? Grammar school or high school, if it's relying on state funding. In other words, if it's public, yes, by and large, you have to have a degree in teaching. Private high schools and private grammar schools, though, they don't have, their faculty do not have to possess the teaching certificate if the administration doesn't want them to or doesn't feel it's necessary. It's only because it's public. Public or private university or college, that master's degree automatically means that you can teach. And you might say, wait a minute, I have an MBA. I have a master's in science and finance. I have a master's in culinary arts. You're telling me that I could walk into a university and they'll allow me to teach? Possibly at the adjunct level, meaning part-time, but at a community college level, you actually could be there full-time, as I am. With a master's degree, a four-year university most likely is not going to touch me with a 10-foot pole. Why? Because there's far more PhDs in history out there than there are jobs. They can hold their high bar as high as they want to make it. But at a community college, a master's degree is what's necessary, is all that's necessary, that or higher. Mind you that a master's degree, oftentimes students are surprised to find out, they often automatically think are far more classes than their bachelor's degree, when in fact the exact opposite is true. Depending upon whether it's credit hours or semester hours, or a quarter system or a semester system, a master's degree generally is 10 classes with a thesis or 12 classes without the thesis. When someone says they have a master's degree, the master's doesn't mean, despite its term, that they actually mastered the content. A master's degree means you've mastered the tools in order to take your level of understanding to the highest degree if you wish to. And you know, of course, what I'm referring to that being the PhD. A master's degree doesn't mean you know everything there is to know in that field. It's impossible today to do that in any field. A master's degree means, in, for example, for my master's in history, I had my bibliographic methods classes. I had my classes in historiography. Now, there's a cure for insomnia. But I had my classes in historiography. These were classes that taught the students how to actually study that field far more in depth than you ever were educated in or exposed to at the bachelor's degree level.
Once that master's is obtained, you then can trek into the final degree field, which is to study a very, very specific part of that academic field so closely and intensely that nobody has actually studied that before. And the information that you discover, the information that you turn around and publish will forever impact that field going forward. If you've impacted it and changed it, even to a slight degree, you've changed it, give me another word for change, a synonym, doctored it. You doctored that body of knowledge. Give me another phrase or word for knowledge, philosophy, body of knowledge. You've doctored that philosophy. In other words, you've got your PhD, a doctorate in philosophy. Yeah, but wait a minute, hold on. My mind, I, I want to go for one in history. Why? No, I want to go for one in sociology, double Y, or finance, or whatever field in business. Psychology, still, it's a doctorate in, it's a doctorate in philosophy. In other words, you've modified, even though it's psychology, it's still philosophy, philos, the love of wisdom. You, in your research, have uncovered something that no human has before in your academic field. And as a result, you doctored that field, you earned that term, doctor. Even though I myself am not a huge proponent of anybody other than a medical doctor being referred to as doctor, that is still your title. So this is just beginning and we'll go in future podcasts to discuss the way education and education institutions change as time marches on. The last part that we'll talk about here in the high middle ages is the rise of Gothic architecture, of course, best exemplified in the in these ideas or these institutions or buildings called Gothic cathedrals. Saint-Denis, Notre Dame, all of these, just two of the many European medieval cathedrals that are just massive. So let's break down. What do we mean by this idea of Gothic architecture? Was it produced by the Goths, the Goths who were in the northern part, modern day northern uh, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, the uh, successors to the uh, Vikings? No, we have no proof that they, the Goths actually were building like this and introduced it to southern Europeans. To most historians' agreement, Goth is literally just a name in this case. While many of the woman, uh, wooden Romanesque churches and buildings had burned down during previous raids, especially under the likes of the reigns of Charlemagne, or were simply drying out. The Gothic cathedral was building not with wood by and large, but stone. There were three advances in architecture that made the building of these human-made Western version of the Egyptian pyramid in their minds there's three distinct architectural features that allowed these buildings to appear to touch the sky in so many ways. And here's once again where, unfortunately, I really wish I had a um, that there was a visual component because I could just simply point these out. But when you have the opportunity to Google these terms, uh, number one is pointed arch, two is a ribbed vault, and three is a flying buttress. In other words, those massive columns that are so tall 
that in order to hold up the roof, they actually extend out beyond the walls of the cathedral to the outside and then go down to the ground where they are hopefully equally distributing that weight. But the pointed arch is those windows that have that pointed top versus the semicircle. If it's a semicircle, it is a Romanesque building. If it has a pointed window and door top, that would be your pointed arch. That would be, indi- in, it would be indicative of a Gothic structure or Gothic cathedral if it's a church or a cathedral. The idea, too, of the ribbed vault, that they took these columns and using stone now, cut stone and putting a one slab on top of the other, it literally, if you were to take down the brick facade, which is there only for cosmetic purposes and to keep the elements out and the heat in, that if you took away that brick wall, it literally would look like a skeleton, like a stone skeleton, and still be able to sustain its own weight. That is what gives us those three things into these beautiful Gothic cathedrals that still grace the lands of Western and Eastern Europe as we speak. Sadly, one of the most notorious uh, that came under a massive fire, that being Notre Dame, if you look at the way that that after the fire was put out, you can see, sadly, the skeletal remains of that cathedral. Yes, parts of the roof caved in, But by and large, those three distinctive features withstood not only the test of time, but also as it's existed for hundreds of years and have been been inside it myself, but actually withstood a massive fire. These thinner walls allowed more light to come inside. That created the rise of what we would call then the modern day stained glass industry. Stained glass is something that I'm particularly partial to as the Kinsella Stained Glass Studios were started by my ancestors shortly after they came here from Ireland. The problem with the Kinsella geniuses, though, that they were in stained glass doesn't necessarily mean that they were business geniuses. And the problem with the Kinsella Stained Glass Studios is they by and large only had one customer, the Roman Catholic Church. Many churches throughout the eastern half of the United States, as well as west into Chicago, occasionally you can find a church with a Kinsella window still in there. The problem was is that once the Great Depression hit and people were not giving in to the Roman Catholic coffers, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't buying as many stained glass windows anymore, and ultimately the stained glass industry took a massive hit, and that Kinsella legacy went out along with the Great Depression. Towns, however, would compete for the most impressive cathedrals. It was not uncommon for hundreds of people to die in the process of building these great cathedrals. You didn't have OSHA in those days. There were no lawyers running around saying, well, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen, right? And as even still, if an individual died, then they were considered dying for the cross, no different than a crusader. Or if a wife lost her spouse because he fell or fell and wasn't killed but was maimed for life, well, you died in the name of the cross, in the name of God. It literally was an honor to not only build these, but in some cases to be injured as they attempted to build these massive cathedrals. Please note, too, folks, that not only did they cost many, many lives, they also cost many, many dollars. And that's part of the reason why to this day, 
you can see many cathedrals throughout Western and Eastern Europe that if you look at the front of them, you literally ask, what the heck happened? Was this engineer, were these engineers drinking when they were designing this thing, the blueprint? No. What you're seeing is a cathedral that ran out of funding and couldn't be finished, either because the bubonic plague hit, a massive war hit, or an economic depression hit. Take your pick. Many of the cathedrals never had the funding to finish. Don't believe me, just Google unfinished European cathedrals. And sadly, you're going to see a lot of examples of these cathedrals that never actually were quite finished. Besides serving the religious functions that they were known for because of their massive size, in some cases being the largest buildings in these major cities, they also served for a lot of civic activities as well. So in this podcast, then we discuss the rise of the city, the commercial revolution, the impact and rise of the first universities, as well as that of the Gothic cathedrals. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you liked what we discussed, please leave me your view as well. Thanks again. Have a great day.